Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Carl Carlson. And this is Fred Schenkelberg. Hey, Carl. Hey, Fred. I had an interesting question from a, uh, from a reader. I get uh, questions about FMEA, and this is someone who is deeply into process FMEA. And he was uh, analyzing the PFMEAs they were getting and had an interesting question. He was basically asking, are root causes or the causes in process FMEA appropriate for things like operator inattention, carelessness, um, even one called human nature. Uh, in other words, a <laughs> category of what I would call operator error. And that just brings up an interesting subject. Well, that's operator blame. Go on. It, it goes back to what it, is it Deming's principles. You know, it's the process. It's not the person. It's, Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's so much to the subject, the process, not the person. The That's a good way to characterize it, because the even like when I review the quality of FMEAs, I mm-hmm. tell people we're not critiquing the facilitator. We're critique, critiquing the FMEA process that generated this FMEA. Mm-hmm. And, and and so because the, the natural tendency is to say, well, the facilitator goofed up. no. There, there's something about the process that wasn't understood, or maybe it wasn't uh, well enough written. And, and the same thing is true if you're analyzing a manufacturing or assembly process. You could blame everything on the operator, but that doesn't get open any doors. Yeah, we got to find a video for Deming's red bead experiment. Yeah. You know? oh. <laughs> oh, I remember that one so well. It's, that's a great um, analogy to this subject or... Oh, I know. And then I, I, I mean, I remember seeing that and, and sharing that concept with the team I was working with at the time. And it would just became a running joke. I'd come down there and berate them, go, work harder, work harder, type harder. And they'd all look at me and laugh. And, and then we'd get on to business um, because it really was, you know, if they can't read, we had a, a, a secretary and this was before voice recording and, tra- and all that other stuff. We, I'd hand write out a bunch of notes for a memo or a letter or a review or something. And then she had to interpret it. And it was obvious that my handwriting sucks. <laughs> <laughs> she could correct spelling and grammar stuff and get it typed out uh, if she could read it. And so it's like, all right. And so she would, you know, shout back at me, write clear. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So taking an example, let's say we're, you and I are assembling a bicycle in a, in a factory, Mm -hmm. we're workers that, uh, and we're old technology, we'll just talk about a brake pad, it could could be the same thing on a, on a rotor. Um, But let's say the brake pad alignment is important, because you could imagine if the pad doesn't line up with the wheel, like if it's, if it's askew, then it's not, it's going to chug or do something. So the so you, one of our jobs is to tighten a line and tighten the brake pad. And if there's no if the process isn't very good, like if there isn't some um, engagement that shows you where the alignment is, if it's totally up to the operator, and if you have no calibrated gun that that uh, tightens it, in other words, it's just how much you tighten it. Yeah. Then you could blame it on any mistake on the operator. Well, they did it wrong. That doesn't fix the process. No. 
No, I, well, it reminds me of, and it's a Westinghouse experiment. Um, remember the, 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 some efficiency guy came into Westinghouse years and years, way long ago, maybe even a hundred years ago. Uh-huh. And they Well, said, I've been around a while, but I'm sorry for Yeah, that one. You missed that one. That. Yeah. No, it, it was, I'm sure you've heard of the experiment, but it was, they, they went in and they were looking at the efficiency and stuff and they ran an experiment where they added, they, everybody knew, the whole factory knew that they were being measured and watched because there's people with clipboards and stopwatches everywhere. And then they changed the lights. They added more lights mm-hmm. to the factory. So it was well lit and yeah. efficiency went up and it was all great and everything's, oh, okay, we got to invest in more lights and put that in other places. And efficiency um when the lights went away it was temporary set up to get the experiment with better lighting so they took the lighting away and they're still making measurements kind of a is lights the factor and it went up again and it turned out that it was somebody with a clipboard and a stopwatch watching you improved efficiency now i don't advocate advocate that but it goes back to the you know you if you're being watched then you pay attention and it is independent of the process itself for making any process improvements. It was that somebody cared and <laughs> somebody oh, was watching. Interesting. interesting yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, what, what comes to mind with me on what you're talking about and in the overall subject is this subject of design for um, the, or, or let me, let me broaden it or call it error proofing. So you can error-proof a design. So we could we could make a little feature in the brake pad alignment so that when you put the brake pad on, it can't be misaligned. It's actually right. a, a bracket. Right. It um, goes on one way and, and when Yeah, it's... it only goes on one way, and that would be error-proofing the uh, design. And then you could error-proof the manufacturing process in some way, like we're... Well, um, a fixed torque wrench, you know? It, it just yeah, exactly. applies a, a fixed amount of torque, and that's it. Um but part of it is, is is thinking through, though, from a design and manufacturing process. And the design is going to have variability. So the design team needs to account for, you know, tolerances on parts and so on. And I think what happens so many times is that the tolerancing is thought in manufacturing is the thought that, well, they can make it up. They they can manipulate stuff and adjust stuff and everything else. It's, it's akin to visual inspection. It, and it's been proven over and over and over again that visual inspection is really bad. It's not easy to yes. do and do well. Right, right. The uh, uh, design for manufacturability, error-proofing, uh, error-proofing the design, error-proofing the process, all of those things I think are underutilized in, uh, in the process FMEA teams. And that's part of my answer back to the uh, person is I always recommend a design engineer where possible. In other words, this is always dependent on possibilities. But the design engineer can then take the information back and, and maybe put in that feature that aligns the brake pad yeah. on the design, uh, but certainly can offer uh, their input. And, and similarly, on the design FMEA, a manufacturing engineer can tell you how sensitive the manufacturing process is yeah. to your design. And so that kind of crosstalk between the design and the process I think is the important part of it. Well, there's if an organization is paying attention to the process uh, capability, you know, control charting and process control and all that good stuff, that's the language I would use to make those, to you know, 
everything varies. And if it's not accounted for someplace, then it's going to be random. And then you couple on top of it is that the operators are chastised by saying, you know, this part doesn't fit and put it aside. Yeah. And there's, and then they're berated for the scrap rate that they're encountering. It's the operator's fault that there's so much scrap. And I'm like, wait a second. No, <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah. The, when you're doing a process FMEA, particularly, you need to take, where possible, you need to take the operator out of the equation. In other words, make the process robust. So even if an operator uh, has their own personal variation on how they do things, you, you still get the job done right. It doesn't mean you don't train people, you do. And that's part of work instructions. Uh, in the FME language, that's part of the, con the process controls, is you can have a, a prevention control around work instructions and training, and that does help. Uh, but that shouldn't be, you shouldn't look down the causes in a PFME and see almost entirely operator error. Well, it, I mean, it, it can't, and I know I've told this story before, is where this, I was visiting a factory and I saw a bus unloading people. And I said, oh, that's cool. You guys, you know, brought your employees in that, you know, that's cool. <laughs> and they go, no, that's new hires. And then oh. they spent the next hour and a half in some conference room telling me how great their training is and how their process control is. Nobody gets on the line unless they know what they're doing. And we, you know, after lunch and many, many delays from getting on the floors, which is what I was there for, we see the guy that I recognize because he had a very vivid rock band t-shirt standing on the line, breaking circuit boards apart. He's depaneling them is the technical term we use. Mm. It's basically... The panel might have a dozen circuit cards in it that we would then install into a, a product, and they would be in one panel, all with little connector tabs between them. And then there's lots of different ways to separate those, in, which is safe to the electronics on the board. Because you can imagine if you bend a circuit board, you can hear all kinds of cracking and popping and stuff. And that's usually not a good thing. No. And it turned out I was there because there was an issue with capacitors cracking. And it, one of the many ways that they can do that is the board flexes. And so I was looking at fixtures and their racks and, and how they're handling the circuit boards and all through the process. And there's this guy depaneling these boards. And he was holding the boards in, in the air and just bending it until the tabs broke. And pretty much everything else broke too on the circuit board. So he was just very effectively creating loads of scrap. <laughs> it's just, and this is and after doing that because of lack of training or what? Well, what I asked this? him, I asked him, so um, how long have you been doing this? Oh, about an hour. You know, what were oh. your instructions? Uh, take, take these apart, break them oh, apart. Take them apart. Yeah. And, and I was like, and so the managers were all, you know, there's a whole entourage following me around the plant, right? And they're all backpedaling everything else and saying, well, you know, production and, and we got to get throughput and and we shortcut a little bit, but he should have understood it's this way. And they, the manufacturing manager, you know, he grabs a panel and puts it down on a table and breaks it off. Not much better. I think even if they did it the way they were supposed to do it, it would have been a problem. Um but they were just, you know, excuse after excuse after excuse. And then they wanted to fire the guy in front of me. I says, no. I looked at the, you know, the plant manager and says, you're the one that needs to be fired. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how interesting. It's always, there's always a trade-off between the uh, a robust design and the operator training. 
in when you're when you're talking about assembly and manufacturing. Yeah. And and so it's not all one or all the other. Uh, it, 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 both is usually the answer, uh, but we don't want it to. In, in fact, uh, the subject of robust design is an interesting subject on its own. Oh yeah. Because the robust design should be insensitive to anticipated variation, which is different than robust. The word robust meaning uh, heavy, strong, you know, that type of thing. Right. right. The point of robustness is to be insensitive. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is you want to make the the uh, design as easy to assemble as possible uh, so that there, the natural anticipated variation. Now, a completely untrained operator like you're talking about is, would not be anticipated variation. So there should be some level of training involved. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And actually done. <laughs> and yes. actually executed. Actually implemented. Yeah. But it's, I use the analogy is when I was a manufacturing engineer and I'd complain about how difficult this new design was to build. <clears throat> I says, what do you want? And I says, I want you to give me the raw materials. I shake it up in a bag and you get a finished product. I mean, if, huh. if, if you are kind, because we're not, is skilled welders, for example. It wasn't part of the process. It was, uh, you know, akin to breaking boards apart was many of the steps that we did in in the factory. There was a couple of steps that created the magic in the product. And that was where the skilled workers with years of training and, and they were quasi-engineers, essentially. Um, they might not have had the degree, but they were as sharp and as smart and as and skilled as any engineer I've known. But after that, it was a lot of manual labor just to get the product in a form that we could sell. And if a product made that difficult inherently, you know, it's really not the operator's fault. <laughs> so let's, oh, yeah. let's go you're, fix you're, that. You're reminding me of a story, Fred. The, uh, I remember back uh, years ago, I was thinking, I'm thinking into the early 1990s, uh, we would rotate our engineers into... Um, work on assembly plants. So the reliability engineers would go and visit certain assembly plants just to make sure they're aware of the processes mm -hmm. and what could be done. And it's part of the um, uh, coaching and interning, so to speak. And so I, I saw one, uh, they were assembling doors and I saw a tool that, uh, that they were using, which is a two by four. And I know I've shared this story with you, but let me just tell it <laughs> for the listeners right now. Because the in this particular design, uh, the doors would be, it's called door fit. So you'd fit the doors so the actual opening around the door is uniform and exactly to specifications. Oh, this and, is, a, I think it was a Mercedes ad where they had the car and some big spindle thing and they put a marble or a ball bearing on that yeah. gap. And yeah. they move the car so that this thing followed that gap all the way around the hood or something. Beautifully like that. done. Yes, yeah. that's exactly, and that's the goal. And of course, you could imagine if you don't have good um, designs for your sheet metal and your door hinges and, the, and the, the bolts and everything, that once you bolt the hinges to the doors and just mount the door, um, it won't necessarily line up. Right. Now, you could design it so that when you bolt it, it lines up, but that wasn't the case. They didn't have that good of process control. Mm -hmm. So there was this assembler, this job was called door fit, and he'd put the two by four in between the uh, the upper and the lower hinge, and then he would start closing the door, which would then sort of stress, we would characterize it as yield, yeah. a little bit of yield of the metal, 
And then he could fit the door depending on where he put the two by four. It was an artisan job yeah. and how much pressure he put on it. Yeah. And so then later, uh, somebody asked me, he said, are we going to assume door fit is a natural part of the process? And I said, let's take that to management. And we took it to management. And they said, you know, it's time that we upped the quality of doors. In this case, it would be like similar to what the Japanese were doing. Mm -hmm. and, and allow it that you assemble the hinge to the sheet metal and the door fits nicely. It fits per specification. And yep. you don't need the two by four or the door fit uh, person. I'm also imagining, you know, that it, I, you know, not a two by four, but let's say a six-year-old is hanging on the side of your door <laughs> pretending it's a swing. There's going to be right. yield involved. <laughs> or if you lean on the door when it's open, it, <clears throat> if, if you can bend it with a two by four, just by a wedge in there, <laughs> Yeah, that design needs some thinking. It needs some thinking, exactly. And so they upped the game, and and we got the doors to where you could. Uh, uh, all you'd have to do is is put in the bolts, get them to the right torque, and the door fits nicely, just like that. And that that was a a real eye opener to me of what it meant to design for manufacturability, what it meant to airproof the process. Mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. actually airproof it to a point where you don't need certain operations. And that that would be ideal. Yeah. No, and it's, um, it's just in, in, in you know the the design for manufacturing the DFM was a craze in the eighty in the nineties. Yes. And I it was there's all kinds of training and all kinds of stuff like that. And and it there was a big where I was working there was a big push to get rid of having fifteen different kinds of screws, or one hundred and fifty or whatever it was. It was. Yeah. <laughs> and part of it the the skilled workforce was like you're dumbing it down so i don't have a job anymore so there's another side to this is there's if you make it so easy that you literally could put it in a paper bag and shake it up and you got a product out of it well what's the operator going to do or it's so dumbed down that they put a bolt in tighten it up and they're just a robot at that point and a robot in many factories now can do that, you know, and it's... Well, and this this is a really important subject. I mean, a, a broad topic, and I'd love to have this conversation with you as to whether or not, I mean, it's it's a subject of the consequences of AI. It's a subject of the consequences of uh, of robust design. I was asked that the other day relating to that we get near the end of a podcast and then we go, oh, that'd be a subject for a whole nother day. And and I she asked, well, do you guys write this down anywhere? <laughs> you come back to it? Because there was a couple of topics I'd really like to hear about. And, and so, so I wrote back, I was like, well, what topics? And, and I haven't heard back yet. So we need to remember to add this to the list. I'm making a note right now, the human element to, uh, I'll call it process improvement. Okay, let me put because it in Because process improvement can put someone out of a job, like the door operator with the two by four. Yeah. Um, and that's really a, a very gross example, but it, it's it's the consequence. This is what I meant by a trade-off. You can put a lot of money and time and effort into a design so that it's easily assembled, or you can do a moderate amount in the design and have a moderate level of training of the assembler, there's a trade-off in there. And uh, part of that trade-off you have to consider is the human element, I believe. Yeah, and all kinds of things go into it. Now, the one last thought is there's, and I don't remember the Japanese word for it, yet it, it's in like porcelain vases and is the example I'm thinking of. 
is that they're perfect and have a, it's kind of an oxymoron. They have a perfect imperfection, hmm. right? There'll, there'll be a fingerprint where it's, they'll have a, a imperfection that is subtle. If you appreciate like the pattern of something, there'll be one piece that was deliberately perfectly offset so that the vase is a perfect, you know, rim all the way around, perfectly level, except in one little spot. And that spot could be used for pouring, for example, so that it flows laminar versus tip rolling down the side of the the uh, pot. But it, in the perfection of the design, <laughs> the, the idea is that the craftsman is so skilled, they could make it perfect, yet what's missing is that it was actually made by hand. And so they deliberately add a handmade imperfection. Interesting. Into the design, in, into the craftsman of the of the system and stuff. And it some when it's really done cleverly, then it's part of the functionality of it. So it might be a perfectly symmetrical thing, except for a very small deviation that allowed it to say pour uh, in an efficient way. Or so something that like that. Perfection becomes part of the uh, anticipated design. Yeah, and and then these things are sought after because mm -hmm. they're made by craftsmen that are so skilled that they have to add an imperfection; otherwise, you don't know it's handmade. Right. <laughs> you know, kind of thing, right. and and like talk over the top, you know, skill and design and all the other stuff that goes in it, but it's. <clears throat> For handmade products like furniture and and baskets and and porcelain and stuff like that, yeah, um, yeah, putting doors together with a two by four, I don't think is quite at that level. No, <laughs> well, in rounding off the topic, just summarizing this is when you're doing process FMEAs, be be alert, be aware that we don't want to make the operator the uh, the the cause. And in in all cases, there might be something about the operator training that needs to be fixed, and that's fine. That's, that could be a recommendation. Or the motivation. Uh, we're looking for the process. Yeah. We're trying to improve the process, not uh, blame the operator. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I th it sounds like we got one or two more topics out of this one. So it's, that's one of those great questions that leads to all kinds of other good things yeah, to talk about. that's true. Yeah, that's true. So if, if you've got a question or if you can remember that Japanese word for that perfect but imperfect uh, art form, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, Carl's got that FMEA list where he has ask Carl a question. I think that's where today's question came from. There's right. uh, Carl and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and, and multiple other places on Ascendo that you can get in touch with us. And we certainly look forward to hearing from you as uh, we tend to get, we're getting more and more questions. So that's, I, I, I think it's a sign of, of more engagement, part of a community building kind of thing. So I certainly look for it and encourage it and look forward to what your questions are. All right. Well so, said, Fred. All right. We'll talk to you later, Carl. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes 
or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.